0: This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am playing Clue with my friends Catherine and Ira. And um, why are we playing Clue, you might ask? Um, that's because this edition of B-Side is all about clues and mysteries. And some of the best mysteries, some of the most captivating mysteries, are the ones about our own lives or the lives of others. And that's pretty much what this show is all about. So um, shuffle up and deal, I guess. Let's play some Clue. So, I am Mrs. White, and Catherine is Miss Scarlet, and Ira is Colonel Mustard. And the goal of this game, there's apparently a murder, and the goal is to find out where this person was murdered, in what room, by whom, and with what weapon. So, Mrs. Peacock with the candlestick in the lounge. Ira? They were silently showing each other cards and, and nodding. So it looks like it's not Mrs. Peacock in the lounge with the candlestick. We're just going to have to keep playing Clue. You know, you can pick up clues about people in many different ways. And in our first story, B-Side contributor John Tynan talked with a man who learns about people through an unlikely source.
1: I have this piano tuner. His name's Kevin Jenkins. He's been tuning my piano for years. When he comes over to the house... He opens up the face of the piano and takes what looks like dentist tools and twists them around the tops of the strings as he strikes the keys. And as he does this, he talks about his experience as a tuner.
2: You know the thing is, about a piano that's kind of unusual, most musical instruments get put in their case. And they're very they are very personal. But pianos, just by their nature, are sort of a, a, a community objects, I think they really take on um, the aura of, of a household.
1: And the way he tells it, it's like the tuning of the piano was incidental. It's like he has as much an ear for listening to people's stories as he does for the pitch of the keys themselves. And then he tells me something really remarkable. He refers to himself as a piano psychologist.
2: And so I say that the piano psychologist because it's not unusual at all for me to meet someone uh, when I come into tune their piano, and by the time I leave their house, have had a very deep philosophical, theological you know, discussion with them When I meet someone, they'll say, oh, you know, I don't play the piano. But they almost always have a piano story. And sometimes, depending upon my schedule, I will spend as much time listening to the stories about the piano after the tuning as I did tuning the piano.
1: He says that the pianos hold clues to a larger story.
2: Just time and time again... Uh, I've talked to people. I mentioned that everybody has a piano story. Frequently, that's a piano story of regret. Uh, I had this piano. I was moving to a different house. I was moving out of state. My children graduated. I, I I thought I should sell it. Now, I wish I hadn't sold it. I would love to have that piano back again.
1: Then he asks me about my piano. And I tell him how it was made in Detroit in the 50s, And how my mother gave it to me as a graduation gift. I tell him how, when I first started dating my wife, one of the things that we did together was play the piano. So um, I'll
3: do the left hand and you can do the right hand. All right.
1: But that isn't the only story that goes along with this piano. I remember years ago, when I was living at my parents' house in Tucson, how I used to open the windows to let in the scent of acacia and orange blossoms. And I would sit at the piano and play. I didn't have that much confidence in my abilities, but I figured I would just play. I would improvise. I would just throw myself into it. I'd just experiment. And I had been doing this for several months, maybe a year, when one morning I was reading the paper and something about the Ann Landers column caught my attention. It read, My neighbors have an older son who is living with them, and he plays the piano, but what he plays just isn't music. I should know. My son is a drummer, and so I know music. I remember how I cut out the article and defiantly kept it taped to the left corner of my piano until it yellowed and eventually faded away. I wasn't going to let that woman's complaints keep me from playing, from feeding my soul with music although I will say I was a bit more careful in my playing. I decided to learn musical forms and play in a way that people could more easily identify.
2: It's the same thing for a lot of people. They have this sort of dual nature. They really would love to be able to play the piano, but they, th- they think, my gosh, I just it's, it's beyond me. I mean, you just have to convince people that, you know, uh, they don't have to be able to, you know, go on tour playing a piano concerto in order to enjoy playing the piano. It's, it's not a competitive sport. If they enjoy playing it, then it has, has value.
1: I think what Kevin Jenkins is trying to say is that people really can play the piano, regardless of their abilities, that they should enjoy playing the piano.
0: That story was produced by B-Side's John Tynan, and I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm playing Clue with my friends uh, Catherine and Ira. All right, Ira, you rolled a six.
2: That's right. I think it was Plum in the lounge with the monkey wrench.
0: It seems that it's not Professor Plum in the lounge with the wrench, but... Do you ever wonder, like, you know, what Professor Plum's backstory is? I mean, we know he wears purple, but other than that, do, I mean, do you wonder more about Professor Plum? Is he a teacher? Yeah, or maybe, like, what does he teach? Like, is it anthropology? High school? Well, probably not high school. <laughs> uh, besides, Rob Sachs wonders these things about all kinds of people that he sees on the street. And he recently tried tuning in to their cell phone conversations to see if he could learn more.
4: I've always been a people watcher. It's not that I'm a particularly nosy person or that I have some sick voyeuristic tendencies. I've just always liked the game of guessing a person's backstory from their outward appearance. As a kid, I had a brief Sherlock Holmes phase. My favorite parts of the books were when Sherlock would size up a suspect within seconds. Hmm, from the white speck on your coat, I can deduce you're a fan of powdered doughnuts. And from that I know you're not very much into fitness. So there's no way you could have fled the crime scene and been back home in under 20 minutes. Isn't that so, Watson? He's very cunning, that Sherlock. But where was I? Oh yes, deductive reasoning in everyday life. It's the best part of people watching. Oh, look at her. She has on trendy shoes. Maybe she's a model. Or that guy with the mullet. Is he clueless or just trying to be ironically chic? But now the sport of people watching is completely different because of one invention. Cell phones. When they first came out, like most people, I was troubled by these shameless attacks on my personal space. All of a sudden, I was confronted by people yammering on and on. I just found it so brazenly rude. There also seems to be a widespread misconception that avoiding direct eye contact with the people around you will somehow affect their eardrums to drown out your nagging voice. Well, let me tell you girl on the bus with the oversized bag who's late for her pedicure... It doesn't. A few weeks ago, I started to think about this whole cell phone thing more anthropologically. I think that's a word. Instead of just being annoyed by the cacophony of personal conversations, I started really paying attention to what I was hearing. I began leaning in, quietly observing my subjects on buses and trains or even underground on the subway. But where I really scored was at the airport. It seems like everyone is on the cell phone here. On a recent trip back from South Carolina, I took a few minutes and surveyed the seats around me. Okay, we've got a middle-aged white guy here in a proper suit. What's he saying? Yes, I'll have that sent over to you on Tuesday. Hmm, boring. Behind me, a lady wearing cowboy boots. Está bien, blah, 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 blah. I can tell from her facial expressions she's saying something sassy, but I can't figure out what. All right, a few minutes pass. And what's this? A very emotional conversation engaged in by a girl with black hair and a knit skirt. I know I shouldn't have given him a second chance, but we've had such a history. Wait, is this conversation really happening here? Pouring it all out, not just for her phone friend, but for all her fellow passengers on U.S. Air Flight 1832? This girl has no shame. I just don't love him anymore. She says it so loudly. She might as well have just announce it over the PA system. This is great. I've got a one act drama playing right before me. I turn to listen more, but the girl suddenly hushes up. Perhaps a tear snapped her back into reality. Okay, dramatic breakups and airports aside, I used to be able to dream up much more interesting lives for people. But the more I listened, the more I realized most people are pretty boring. It turns out a lot of guys with mullets still live at home. And girls with big bags aren't hiding any government secrets. They just like to shop. So, to save my imagination, I've made a bold decision to reprogram my head and once again try to ignore public cell phone conversations. It turns out, playing detective is a lot more fun when you don't have all the clues.
0: Rob Sachs is a radio producer who lives in Washington, D.C. And this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith. And we're sitting in my dining room playing a game of Clue, which is appropriate because this edition of B-Side is all about clues and mysteries. So I think, Catherine, it's your turn. Ooh, I don't want to go anywhere, though. I'm going to stay in the dining room. I'm going to say Professor Plum in the dining room with the rope.
5: We'll see about that.
0: Our game of Clue here continues, and... um, I don't know if I feel like I'm any closer to figuring out uh who did it in what room with what weapon. But we're we're getting there, we're moving along, process of elimination. Um I recently interviewed a guy, Steve Lichteye. He's a radio producer and occasional documentary filmmaker. And right now he's working on a documentary called Open Secret, which is about his own life. His life story, his childhood is quite the mystery. Steve was always told that he was adopted, but as he got older, he learned that there was a lot more to the story.
6: I grew up on a farm in Kansas, and from the outside looking in, it was a very idyllic uh, childhood, Uh, and living it was was good too, but it wasn't, um, my parents and I weren't that close.
0: And I guess eventually maybe you found out why.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's funny looking back on it. Um, I can see now why, oh, right. This is probably why we weren't that close. Um, because of something that I ended up finding out when I was, uh, 18 years old that I, that I had no idea had been the case. I grew up in this family, this Catholic family, six sisters, two brothers. When I was five years old, I was told by my mom and dad that I was adopted and I did have this desire to want to know who my real parents were, and I remember telling my best friend, uh, we had concocted this plan in second grade that we were going to get a semi-truck and we were going to drive across the country uh, looking for my parents while making money as truck drivers.
0: That's quite a plan.
6: All the time. Yeah, that was our plan. So my friend Vance, I mean, he's actually a very pivotal person in the story because he talked about it so much that finally his mom pulled him aside and said, listen, you can't, you've got to stop talking about this and told him something that he then would, you know, like 10 years later, tell me. Uh, and it was the day of my graduation from high school, Vance, and says, uh, you know, something that you need to know. And I, I think I'm the one that should tell you. And I was like, okay, well, what, you know, tell me. He said, I know who your mother is. I was completely blown away. I was like, what do you mean? How do you know what? What are you talking about? And he says, I know who your mother is and it's Joni. Now, who's Joni? Joni is my oldest sister, or the woman I grew up thinking was my oldest sister. I was like, how do you know this? What do you mean, Joni? And he said, everybody, everybody knows. Everybody knows it's Joni. Everybody, you know, and I was like, what do you mean everybody? And he said, everybody that we went to school with knows.
0: So you go 18 years not knowing a pretty big fact about your life. You know, thinking that, that your mother is somewhere out there. And in reality, she's somewhere right there.
6: Yeah. I mean, every Christmas, she's there. Every, uh, you know, Easter, all the holidays, there's there's Joni. Um, It's funny because Vance always said, he goes, yeah, you know, Joni always gave you, like, the best presents at Christmas. And Joni, you know, everybody else gave you socks, and she's giving you, you know, like, awesome games. And uh, so she's buying me all these nice things, and, you know, she's just my sister. It's like, why is my sister buying me all this nice stuff?
0: There were clues out there. All over the place. Oh yeah,
6: yeah. And I didn't, and I didn't look unlike, you know, the Licti side of the family. You know, I looked like a Lick-Tie, partly. You know, I mean, I, you know, I was because I was half Lick-Tie. It just never even occurred to me. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe, you know, deep down, I was afraid of what the truth was in some way. I knew and didn't want to ask a lot of questions.
0: So once you do find out, I imagine you have a lot of questions.
6: Yeah, and I have a lot of questions, but not the questions you would sort of think. It's funny. Like I thought that I would. I thought the second question would be, who's my father? And that was, like, maybe the 20th question. So this was, like, in the middle of May 1987, and I basically sit on this information for about a month, and I don't say anything to my parents at all, but something snapped in me, and I kind of forced it into my, you know, parents' consciousness, and, like, I mean, I basically blew up at them.
0: And and how did they react to you blowing up and saying, hey, I know?
6: They were in denial, my mother particularly was in total denial. I mean uh this was after I got caught having sex with my girlfriend, and she had basically made this big deal out of it and after she made this big deal out of it, i said oh you didn't you know you didn't give Joni the abstinence lecture and then she said, "What do you mean What are you talking about I don't really ta-, you know and it went into this long thing of her denying anything. And I said, "Listen, I know Joni's my mother, and she said, "I don't know what you're talking about. She denies denies denies, and to the point where finally my father who was all he was a very quiet guy, just slams his fist down on his lazy boy chair and says, damn it, just tell him. And so then I like get angry and I storm out of the house and I go to a motel in the town nearest where I grew up and I was able to get some beer and then I get my friends together and I get drunk. You know, they track me down in the motel room and they're like, come home. And I'm like, no. And then, then the, then Joni calls me and she's just apologetic and trying to explain everything about why it happened and how she should have stood up to them. And, you know, somewhere in that conversation with Joni, I asked about my father you know, and she had sort of these crazy stories. She didn't know that much about him. I mean, really, they had seen each other for three months in Los Angeles when she had gone out there in her 20s.
0: And so how did you find out eventually really who your father was?
6: Finally, around the age of 25 or 26, I kind of got to the point where I just felt like I really needed to know more. So I asked her to hire a private investigator. The guy ended up tracking down a daughter that he had and... Joni hands me this address and this phone number and this name, uh, Brenda, and I take the piece of paper and I fold it up and I put it away and I don't look at it for like five years.
0: That's a long time.
6: Uh, Yeah. And so I, I pulled out the address and I wrote Brenda a letter. And three days later, I get a phone call and it's Brenda. And I said, well, you know, tell me everything about Henry. And she said, well, you better sit down. And... She said, well, Henry had a very hard life. And, you know, she said he was born in Poland. He was a Jew, a Holocaust survivor. He spent time in several camps, came to America in about 49 and moved to Chicago and ended up owing a lot of money to people and eventually leaving his wife and moving to Los Angeles where he ended up meeting my sister, mother.
0: You grew up thinking that you were Catholic and you, you find out when you're 30, older than 30, that you are, in fact, half-Jewish, which is a big thing to yeah. find out.
6: Yeah, it's pretty big. Um, I mean, you know, I didn't know anything about Jewish people or Jews, and then I find out not only am I Jewish, but my father's kind of like the Mac Daddy major Jew of all because he is a Holocaust survivor. So it's not just like he's Jewish, but he's like totally Jewish.
0: Well, I mean, you suddenly have the Holocaust in your history. It's not abstract anymore.
6: No, not at all. And I went through this period where I really embraced it too, when I was like, "Wow, I'm a Jew, and I'm a suffering Jew to boot." Really, what it was it was it gave me something to latch onto. Like this is a concrete identity that I can call my own. And and I also made it made Henry and and the Eagle family very noble in my head. I turned the Licties into a bunch of liars and finally got over that. I mean, I really got to the point where I realized I could sort of take all of these pieces of me and live with them. You know, I can accommodate all that stuff.
0: Well, Steve Lichtai, thank you so much for talking to us at B-Side. You're welcome. Well, so, back to of Clue here, and... I got to figure it out, guys. You got to figure it out? You have to figure it out. All right, it looks like Ira may have the answer so we better hurry up and get on to our last story before the game is over. Sometimes Clues are as subtle as, mm, I don't know, like an elephant or a ton of bricks. I mean, if you've ever driven along Interstate 10, along the southern half of the country, it's one of those big cross-country interstates. You may have seen signs for something called the thing. I've always wanted to stop and see the thing. Do you have any idea what the thing is? No, I have no idea. Well, besides Renee Gattel drove past it and, and had a similar feeling, like what is this thing? And so she went to
3: investigate. I first saw the signs for the thing when I was driving across the country along Interstate 10. And my dad was with me and he was helping me move to Phoenix.
5: The Thing, Mystery of the Desert.
3: The billboard looked kind of like a poster from some 1950s B-horror flick, and it advertised Exit 322 in Arizona. About 20 miles later, we saw a second sign.
5: The Thing, we expect you.
3: My dad and I kicked around ideas of what we thought The Thing might be, but when we finally came to Exit 322... From the road, all we could see was this run-down, kind of dusty truck stop. And um, without even discussing it, we just kept on driving. But I couldn't stop thinking about the thing and wondering what it was and wondering whether I should have stopped. So about a year later, I used my job as a reporter as an excuse to go back down there.
0: You finding everything, guy? Oh, yeah.
3: I pulled off at the truck stop, and there was this large gift shop with about half a dozen tourists wandering around, Um, and they were deciding whether or not to go and pay the dollar fee to see the thing.
5: I'd like to think it's some mutated humanoid form.
3: It's probably
1: uh, something to do with some ancient dinosaur
5: or something of that nature. It's a small thing, I've heard, but other than that, I have no idea. I've stopped here before, but I've never walked through here.
3: That's Brad Swain. He's a trucker, and he had decided that today was the day that he was going to see it. And so he paid his dollar, and the shop owner pointed Brad over to the entrance, which was in the back of the store.
5: I'm just wondering what it is and what it looks like.
3: The door led us out to a cement walkway behind the gas station, and we followed it into a large metal shed.
5: Do I need to close my eyes? And be shocked, is this it?
3: Inside the shed, there was a wooden coffin with a glass top. And we peered in and saw a mummy, about five feet long, holding what looked like a baby mummy.
5: I wonder how old it is.
3: Do you think it's real?
5: Yes. Yeah, I do. I think it's real. Exposed bones. See the rib cage. I don't think anybody could fake that.
3: Most of the other tourists that I talked to um, also thought that the thing, the mummy, was real. And the truck stop workers kind of played into this uh, with their own story that they told us about how she was an American Indian mother who had been found in a cave. So I went back to the office um, determined to find out who the mummy had been. Um, but, but, but what I found out was that the mummy wasn't real at all.
6: A man named Homer Tate made the thing, and um, he was one of the most prolific makers of what they call gaffes for sideshows across America.
3: That's Shad Kvetko. He lives in Phoenix, and he's Homer Tate's great-grandson. A gaff is an old circus word for a fake creature used in sideshows to draw people into a tent. The most famous gaff was probably the Fiji mermaid, which was made by attaching the head of a monkey to the tail of a fish.
6: As it turns out, oddly enough, um, my father was married to his granddaughter, she had vague memories of childhood, of Christmas morning, opening up gifts and pulling out shrunken heads only to be snatched away by her parents who were very strict Mormons and looked down on such things.
3: I put together this goofy little radio story debunking the thing. But months later, the phone rang. And and here's where things kind of get weird. It was a special agent with the Bureau of Indian Affairs calling me uh, because he wanted to talk to me about the thing. He said that there had recently been several complaints about the mummy, and one came from a woman named Jane Schrock. She's a retired nurse who, who was on vacation going through southern Arizona, and she went and saw the thing. There was an Indian woman in it with a child. In my profession, I've seen real bones. It looked very authentic. And the more I thought about it, the more appalled I became. I thought it was a terrible thing. It was an affront to womankind. I thought it was an affront to the Indians. Jane was so offended that she wrote a letter to the Navajo Nation, telling them that they should look into the matter. And her letter ended up on the desk of this special agent, John Fryer, uh, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He's an investigator who, who enforces what's called the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act.
5: All human people, no matter who they are, deserve the respect and, and deserve to, to have a final resting place. From my perspective, and also being Native American, I feel it's very important uh to be able to return to the earth, you know, the bones of, of the people and let them rest.
3: John was calling me to confirm his own theory that the mummy was fake. And so I told him about the research that I'd done and how I came to my own conclusions. And at this point, John thought that his investigation was over. Uh, but, but John, however, didn't want to close the case without, without going down and seeing it for himself.
5: And I did that. Went and paid my dollar, uh, looked at it. But one of the things that hit me at that point in time was that there were um, bones scattered around the what was called the Thing. And I recognized some of those bones as being human.
3: The operators of the Thing would never agree to talk to me. But John says that they always knew that the mummy was fake and that they were as shocked as anyone to find out that they actually were displaying real human bones.
5: We had pieces of skulls. We had some heel bones. We had... Uh, Uh, some rib bones, some phalanges, and we do know that we have at least five different people in that set of, of bones.
3: John opened a new investigation into the fragments, but closed his case on the thing without filing any charges. I had no idea when I first saw those signs how I'd get sucked into the story and uncover more than I ever could have imagined. The Mummy and all of the billboards are still along Interstate 10 and exit 322. And so for other drivers, traveling between El Paso and Phoenix, the mystery of the desert lives on.
0: That story was produced by B-Side's Rene Gattel, who I suspect probably couldn't turn away from the occasional roadside tourist trap. You're listening to B-Side, and I'm Tamara Keith, and I am playing Clue with my friends Catherine and Ira, and um, I, uh, I we are wrapping the game up, and I am about to make an accusation. It could be a false accusation, um, but I I accuse Mr. Green with the candlestick in the dining room. So, um, Ira, do you want to look at the solution cards? It
5: says it was Mr. Green in the dining room with a candlestick.
0: I win. <laughs> That's all for this edition of B-Side. Thanks so much for listening. We had contributions from John Tynan, Renee Gattel, Rob Sachs, and also a big thanks to Steve Lichtai for uh, letting us interview him about his life. I'm B-Side's host and senior producer, Tamara Keith.